Welcome to Wednesday evening, Wednesday evening, Wednesday morning chapel. Get my mouth in, in gear. Uh, as for me and my house, yeah, we, we've got this, we've got the new like translation version going in the evenings, but serve the Lord will work well. Uh, about a couple months ago, um, maybe a month ago, the regular, regularly scheduled uh, chapel for this morning was canceled, and so I thought, hmm, I, I don't have a chance to preach in this chapel, so I, so I thought I might. So I'm glad you came. Um, but I, but I want to warn you right up front. Um, uh, this is not like this sermon is not like those that pastors get every so often. These kind of offers, uh, pastor. You know, the Lord has just laid something on my heart that that I just love to share with the congregation. So if you ever need somebody to fill in at the last minute, just just let me know and I'll be glad to do that. That's not one of these sermons. So, um, actually, what, uh, what I did was um, look for the lectionary readings for this week. And so our sermon today is going to be from what uh, Christian churches around the world used as their worship uh, this past Sunday. So uh, to begin, I, um, I want you to take the Bibles in front of you and turn to Isaiah. I've asked Rick Forstel to uh, read the first passage of Scripture for us. Okay. Isaiah 6, 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled a temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with the ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, 
until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The psalm reading for this week is Psalm 138. So take your Bibles and I want us to read it responsively. Psalm 138. And I'll read the first verse and you'll respond with the second and so on. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down before your holy temple, and I will praise your name, for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. When I called, you answered me. You made me bold and stout-hearted. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he looks upon. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand you save me. Testament lesson comes from 1 Corinthians 15, and I've asked Trudy Wilson to read that for us. Friends, let me go over the, the message with you one final time. This message that I proclaimed and that you made your own. This message on which you took your stand and by which your life has been saved. I'm assuming now that your belief was the real thing and not a passing fancy. That you're in this for good and holding fast. The first thing I did was place before you what was placed so emphatically before me. That the Messiah died for our sins, exactly as scripture tells us. That he was buried, that he was raised from death on the third day, again, exactly as scripture says. That he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later to more than 500 of his followers, all at the same time. Most of them still around, although a few have since died. That he then spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him. And that he finally presented himself alive to me. It was fitting that I bring up the rear. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle, as you well know. Having spent all those early years trying my best to stamp God's church right out of existence. But because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. And I'm not about to let this grace go to waste. Haven't I worked hard trying to do more than any of the others? Even then, my work didn't amount to much at all. It was God giving me the work to do, God giving me the energy to do it. So whether you heard it from me or from those others, it's all the same. We spoke God's truth and you entrusted your lives. The gospel lesson for this morning is from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, I need you to turn there. Luke 
Every so often I visit a Christ, another church in town and when it gets to the gospel reading, this is what they do. They bring the gospel back to the people. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the pe people crowding around him, listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, uh, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught, with such, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> well, these are the four texts for the week. Each of them give amazing witness to God's grace. Each of them tells an astonishing story about some things he had done. In Isaiah's account, God reveals himself to the prophet and he calls him and he cleanses him and he commissions him and he does it in pretty extraordinary ways. These are memorable events. At least they would have been if it had happened to me. In the Psalm of David, the psalmist praises God for working on his behalf. He prophesies that the kings of the earth will eventually do the same. And then he proclaims that God will continue to keep and deliver him in spite of. And you can just fill in the blank. In his letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul reviews the essentials of the Christian faith. He reminds the Corinthians of the corroborating witnesses. And then he recounts to them how he himself has responded to all that he's just told them. And then the gospel account. It's really one of these times when Jesus went fishing. Jesus went fishing first by teaching the crowds who had gathered to hear him and learn from him. They had heard enough about him that they knew that they wanted to get close to this guy. Then Jesus went fishing by telling Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the guys in those boats that day, he told them where the fish were waiting for them. And then finally, Jesus went fishing by inviting those fishermen to join him in a new kind of fishing expedition where the fish they'd caught would be this big. 
astonishing stories, but really nothing new. Some old familiar Sunday school things that we'd heard a long time ago about some unbelievable things that God did way back then. Hmm. Do you remember the first time you heard these stories? Weren't we just blown away by the vision of Isaiah? Now, as at Olivet, we sang a, a setting of this story, and I hear the voices in the song and the, in the, and the angels in my head. Just amazed that God would reveal himself that way to somebody. Remember reading the Psalms for the first time and just being astonished at how faithful God continued to be to those folks, even in the midst of their complaining? Uh, weren't we just astonished by Jesus' life and death and resurrection? And then uh, he appears to all those folks that Paul talks about there in that chapter. W weren't we awed by... Jesus' miracle with the fish and then his miracles with those disciples. I don't know, sometimes looking over that crew, it might have been easier to catch fish than make them fishers of men. But that was then, this is now, and sometimes, let me suggest, sometimes I don't think those stories mean that much to us anymore. Well, it could be. Could be that we've moved on by these accounts because they're so familiar to us. I mean, really, what's new? Heard Isaiah read before? Sure. God appeared to him? Yeah, okay. Jesus helped him find fish? Well, of course. Maybe we're less impressed by these stories because it's been a long time since Sunday school and we've moved on. Other things to talk about. Other things to consider. Maybe, maybe we're less likely to be awed by these stories because between then and now, things have not gone the way we expected them to go. Maybe because the realities that we have experienced along the way have challenged our ability, our willingness to believe the unbelievable. I mean, these stories really are unbelievable. If you read them in a comic book, you'd say, oh, that's just a story. If you read them in the newspaper, inquiring minds would want to know where you found out that information. Maybe the realities that we've experienced along the way have challenged our willingness to believe the unbelievable. So, I think that today, God has been speaking to us through each of these passages. I think that he's calling us through each of these stories. He's saying, believe the unbelievable again. Again. Believe that God revealed himself to Isaiah, that he cleansed Isaiah's sins, that he called Isaiah to go, and Isaiah said, 
said, sure. Let's. Believe that God answered David's prayers. Believe that he was worthy of David's praise. Believe that God kept David close in the midst of the trials that came on the other side of that song. Believe that Christ died for our sins. That he was raised on the third day. That he appeared to Peter. That he appeared to the disciples. That he appeared to 500 other folks. And just in case, well, he made a special trip back for Paul. Believe it again. Believe that Jesus helped the disciples find the fish that they were looking for that day in such a way that they left their nets and the fish in the nets and followed him. Believe it again. Believe the unbelievable again. However, to do that means that we have to do more than just acknowledge these events as historical facts. To do that is to do more than just accept that what the Bible has said here is true, is so. See, to believe the unbelievable again requires us to move beyond intellectual assent to get past theological dogma, it means that we will have to embrace with our hearts the God who reveals himself through these written witnesses. In fact, that's what the word believe originally meant. The word that we use to describe something we do with our heads these days originally described something that people did with their hearts. Our word believe has its origins in this and some old high German and some old English words that meant to hold dear, to love, to give one's heart to. Originally, the word meant to be love. If we are ever going to really believe the unbelievable again, we are going to have to be love the one who's revealed in this stories. We are going to have to give our hearts again to the one who reveals himself to us through us just like we did the first time. Truth is, though, you know it as well as I. It's always more of a challenge the second time around, isn't it? All in favor, say aye. It always takes more trust. It always takes more faith. It always takes more grace to believe the unbelievable again. So I think one of the words to us this morning is that the God who made our believing possible the first time will make it possible this time too, if we'll let him. If we'll let him.
But believing the unbelievable again will mean surrendering to God all of the reasons that we've kept that keep us from believing. All of the reasons that we hold on to that keep us from beloving Him again. All of the reasons have to go. All of the experiences, all of the disappointments, all of the challenges, all of the differences between what it was we thought it was going to be when we started and what we've discovered it to be now, they all have to go. They don't get set aside though. That's just denial. They're given back to him. And our believing becomes beloved because all of the reasons why we're not sure we can do this again are given back to the one who makes it possible for us to do this first time. And we know each other well enough to know, I know some of you well enough to know, uh, that we could just stop right here and unpack some bags. Maybe we need to. Um, certainly, the situation with my granddaughter has been uh, one of the most challenging things I've ever been through. Uh, born healthy, pretty, lovely. Meningitis at 13 days, and uh, she's like a four-year-old, but she's a year and a half acts like uh, a little infant, but she should be walking. And the things that, then the grace of God that has brought me to the point of being able to believe the unbelievable again is in the face of that reality. That's true. Caridwin will always be that way. But God will always be God. And there is no discordant disconnection between those two truths. God who revealed himself to Isaiah, the God who, who took David through the trials, the God who revealed himself to all those folks including Paul and the God who knows where the fish are is the same God who held my granddaughter in his arms and in his hands. Both of those are true. So I think one of the things that the scriptures are saying to us today that the Lord, let me back up, that God is saying through his scriptures today is that it is possible and really the, um, he invites us to believe the unbelievable again. Again. Uh, go ahead and put that picture on the screen. Uh, this might capture some of the things that we've gone through. Uh, this is the Lady Lake Church of God in Florida. They held services there last Sunday. This is on the other side of their tornado. Uh, you can't, maybe you can see it. Behind the pastor to his left is the remains of the cross that were at the front of, the, in front of their sanctuary. Uh, there's a drum set over here. Of course, you can't have church without drums, right? <laughs> but the folks said, in the face of the reality, we will believe the unbelievable again. And they met in his name. This is from the New York Times Monday. This happened Sunday. 
The tornadoes happened, what, Wednesday? Wednesday, week before? So I thought it helped capture uh, one of the points of the passages. The other point that has to be um, that has to be addressed that comes from these passages is this. The point of the passages is that it is not that if we believe the unbelievable then God will do something for us. The point of the passages is is that if we believe the unbelievable again, well, we'll do something for him. Go back and look at the texts. After the vision and after the cleansing and after the commissioning, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me, look at what God asked him to do. Did you notice when Rick read that? That's the first mission impossible. Make the mind of these people dull, stop their ears, stop, shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their ears and listen with their, uh, see, look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Preaching's hard enough, and look at the people that he's going to go preach to. And at the end of the, and at the end of the section, there's this little word: the holy seed is in its stump. This promise. Believing the unbelievable again means that not just that God will do something for us, but that primarily we'll do something for him. And if you read the psalm, David says in the middle of it, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me. Against the wrath of my enemies, you stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. And Paul, well, Paul's life speaks for itself, right? I mean, think of the places that he had been and, and think of all of, the, all of the people that he had touched and all of the suffering that he went through. Uh, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the Hilton he was staying in when he got to Rome. And Peter, James, and John leave a well-established business and, and good business and good friend connection and net and a net full of fish that they could at least turn, you know, until they left. They followed Jesus wherever he took them. Believing the unbelievable again means that we'll do something for God. On the first day of my first class of Christian theology at Nazarene Theological Seminary, Dr. Greider got up, adjusted his microphone, and said, theology wears overalls. Theology wears overalls. It is the beliefs by which we live. And then he began to list some ways that folks had believed the unbelievable again. So I found my notes. <laughs> September 2, 1983. That was before Sam was born, I think, right? Theology is converted Augustine confessing the greatness of God, Thomas Aquinas praying the whole night through, Francis of Assisi saying all day we have preached after meeting social needs of people, Adam Clark giving money, clothes, and shoes away, William Booth's interest in the poor, Charles Finney at Overland College in the 1800s saying let the whites have the segregated tables. 
John Huss being burned at the stake, Martin Luther standing before the Diet of Worms says, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. Bishop Latimer and Ridley burned at Oxford while Cranmer watched from his prison cell. John Wesley preaching at 5 a.m. in the morning. Now, that would be a stretch for me. <laughs> Phineas F. Brzee, 57 years old, begins his work among the poor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, hanged by the Nazis in 1945, says, we make God's grace too cheap by our shallow discipleship. Cher Shusky, born a Jew in Lithuania, paralyzed 25 of the 75 years that the person lived. So he translated God's word for the Chinese. Theology wears overalls. We do what we believe. We do what we believe. Our believing the unbelievable again may mean that we'll have to stick our necks out like Isaiah. It may, may mean that we will have to trust more deeply through our trials like David. It may mean that we'll have to travel the world like Paul or change vocations like the disciples. It could be something dramatic like these stories or it could simply be living our everyday lives as though we be love the God who first loved us. For when we truly believe the unbelievable again, the patterns of our lives change. Our lives will look less like us and more like the God who calls us. The God who does the unbelievable. The God who wants us to give him our hearts and all the reasons why we're afraid to. The God who invites us to be loved in him again. Let's pray. Father, you've been speaking to us through your word, through your spirit, through the histories of our lives. It was grace that taught our hearts to fear and grace our fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour we first believed. What we pray for, Father, is the ability to believe the unbelievable again in every part of our lives, for every part of our lives, and to trust you with the outcome. No strings attached, nothing reserved. Our whole hearts in your hands. And we thank you for the reality of that truth and the possibilities that it holds. We believe it because Jesus said it was so. And we pray it in his name. Amen. A couple months ago, a month or so ago, Glenn and I were, Glenn Cook and I were talking. 
Oh, we were talking about computer stuff. Are you surprised? And Glenn said to me, he said, you know, there's a hymn that I really like to sing. Uh, how, how is it that you choose the songs? And I said, well, usually try to find out what the theme is and, and uh, try to pick the songs accordingly. He said, well, uh, so could we sing Be Thou My Vision sometime? And I said, well, sure, sometime. And I think today is sometime. Uh, because I think it captures all that, those, that God's been saying to us through his word today. The, the text will be on the screen, but if you'd rather have the hymn in your hands, it's 460 in the hymnal. And if you need the tune, the, the hymn that will help you with that. So 460, be thou my vision. Stand, let's sing. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son. empty praise Thou mine inheritance now and always Thou and Thou only first in my heart High King of Heaven my treasure Thou art High King said, Amen. Go in his peace.